Then it was time for a shower. I had a mold-resistant and antimicrobial chrome shower head so I wouldn't get cancer. First, I washed my hair with Christoph Robin purifying shampoo with jujube bark extract, and then, while my hair mask was soaking, I double cleansed with Kiehl's Midnight Recovery Botanical Cleansing Oil, followed by a glycolic acid face wash by Kate Somerville. On my body, I used exfoliating yoga soap made with shea butter and marine nutrients with an aquatic bouquet of sea kelp and coconut. On my vulva, I used Drop of Hope from Lush made with rapeseed oil and tofu. Hello and welcome to The Unspeakable. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Lee Stein, author of the hilarious and slyly wicked satirical novel, Self Care, which you've just gotten a taste of and which was published last month by Penguin Random House. Lee Stein, thank you for joining me and congratulations on your new novel, Self Care. And I'm not just saying this because you're on the show. In fact, it's the reason I asked you to be on the show. This novel is so hilarious and so smart in so many ways. And I just absolutely loved it. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about what it's about? I could try to summarize it, but it's probably better that that you do. Sure. So my novel self-care is about female co-founders of a wellness startup called Ritual, R-I-C-H-U-A-L. That's kind of if Goop and Instagram had a baby. So it's a social media platform for women to practice self-care and kind of compete with each other about taking care of themselves. And over the course of the novel, um, some allegations come up that kind of uh, threaten their work-wife friendship and force them to, to choose sides. So it's kind of a Me Too novel, but I, I was less interested in the abuse allegations than I was interested in kind of the fallout of the women who have to clean up the pieces after someone like a male founder is, is, is accused of uh, bad behavior. The point of view shifts between three women, Marin, Devin, and Khadija. Um, so can you just Tell us briefly who they are, what their dynamic is. Sure. So Marin is the um, workaholic with an alcohol problem who thinks that um, she knows how to do everything better than everyone else. And she's the COO. The CEO is Devin, and she's kind of the Gwyneth Paltrow perfect face of the organization. So she's the one that appears in pictures on everything while Marin's kind of behind the scenes making the whole thing run. And then Khadija is their very important first hire. She's a black millennial, while the other two women are white millennials. And um, she's in charge of their editorial content, um, which means like publishing tons of blog posts every day and doing tons of um, unappreciated behind the scenes works work for her uh, white bosses. And, you know, one of the moments that really jumped out at me in the novel uh, was this this uh, idea that Devin's standard was to have two stock photos with women of color for every one stock photo of all white women. <laughs> and it wasn't until I read that that I thought, God, you know, you see that all the time in these graphics for these different websites, for these sort of this, these kind of w wellness and self-improvement and just sort of like you go girl, the, the, that sort of aesthetic, it seems um, performatively diverse. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us more about, about how that works. So we can talk more about this, but one of the reasons I wrote this book is that for three years, I ran a feminist nonprofit organization called Out of the Binders. 
and we organized conferences for women writers. And I just remember the conversations we would have because we, we wanted to make our conference diverse and inclusive. And I, and I do think we succeeded in that. And I'm proud of our conferences. But there were a lot of conversations about like, when do we publish the page that has the pictures of the speakers? Because we wanted to make sure that enough women of color were represented pictorially before we hit publish so that it would appear as diverse as it was. And there were a lot of conversations about like, does this panel, is this panel diverse enough? Well, we have this kind of person. Do we have that kind of person? So some of this, I think this, like, I guess you could call it identity politics. I mean, some of it is, is for the good, you know, we didn't want to have like an all, all straight white cis women conference, but some of it becomes a little uncomfortable and it feels like tokenizing when you're just looking for people based on identity markers. And explain to me what, uh, out of the binders, binder con really was, did it come out of the Facebook binders group? And they in turn came out of Mitt Romney's statement that he had binders full of women back during exactly. was it the 08 election. So I think, you know, a lot of people probably don't even know the origin of binders. It's just become like a, it's taken on a life of its own. So how did your organization emerge? Yeah. So there was a freelancer in Canada named Anna Fitzpatrick who started this secret Facebook group for women writers called Binders Full of Women Writers. And she kind of started it as a joke. It, the idea was that you would add another woman to the group because it was a secret. And she thought 20 people would join this group. Within three months, there were 30,000 members. And I was one of those 30,000. And I thought, this is so cool. It was like a networking hub. Um, you would see all kinds of like famous influential writers pop in, like Jody Cantor was there from the New York Times, and it'd be like, "Hi, Jody." Yeah, everybody was there. It everybody was, it, was, was there. it was amazing. Yeah, this it was, was like kind of how Facebook was when it when it kind of started to take off. It's like, wow, this person is here. Okay, yes, it had that feeling totally. It felt like a club, even though it was enormous. It, it still felt like a club, and people were getting gigs and were getting jobs and were getting agents through this group. And I had the idea to make it a conference. So in the summer of 2014, I started organizing a conference and I met another woman who said, you need to raise money for this. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Like I was, I had a very like, let's put on a show in the barn kind yeah. of <laughs> attitude about it. Um, so we started a Kickstarter. We set our goal at $40,000, which seemed like a huge amount of money to me. We ended up raising $50,000. The conference ended up costing $80,000 because right, right. to put on a conference in New York City is um, tremendously expensive. But um, from there, it became a 501c3. So my idea to just have one conference actually became a nonprofit organization. I became its executive director. And I ended up doing that for three years and organizing conferences in New York City, which were more media publishing focused, and in Los Angeles, which were more TV and film, which, of course, is where the gender inequities are even more um, stark and apparent than in book publishing, which, of course, is like there's a lot of women in book publishing already. Right. Yeah. I actually think I'm still, for some reason, in the binders full of women and women identifying screenwriters or writers in Hollywood yeah. for some reason. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, there's the, about 200 subgroups. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the discussions on, on that one are, are pretty robust um, and quite uh, pertinent and necessary. Uh, so that's one that one's been interesting to be a part of. Yeah, I think it's, it's been really helpful to a lot of people. But what I found is that my experience organizing the conferences was so rewarding. And I was so proud of that work. And my experience being in the Facebook group became so toxic. Um, that that's really what fueled me to write this novel, because there was so much drama and infighting in the name of quote, unquote, feminism, just women doxing each other and 
um, you know, calling each other's employers, get them fired. It was like, it was pretty ugly. And it's interesting to see some of this cancel culture stuff play out now more in public because first I feel like I saw an early stage of it happening in these private groups. And now we're seeing it play out in the, a more public arena on Twitter. Can you think of some examples? Like, are you able to just sort of, uh, without naming names, give us a, a sense of the infighting and doxing that was going on? I didn't realize it had gotten that severe. Oh, yeah. I mean, I still hear stories of it happening. So I, when I resigned in 2017, I left Facebook altogether because I kept getting tagged into these um, disputes. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Something I'm, I'm more, it's more easy to talk about is one of the things that led to my resignation was there was a huge conflict about whether or not we should allow babies and children at our conference. And it caused this feminist rift. So on one side, you had women, and, and I see it, I would like to hear your perspective, because I saw it as very generational. On one side, there were millennials who said, how can you call yourself a feminist organization if you aren't welcoming babies? Because, um, you know, raising children is a communal effort and, you know, professional working women, they don't necessarily have access to childcare. They should be allowed to bring their babies. Then there were Gen X boomer women who came from the point of view of, you know, I pumped to go to conferences in the 80s. I want to be in a space with other women. Like, I don't want to hear a screaming baby while I'm networking uh, with an editor for my piece. And I, I am a Libra and a people pleaser. And I really, <laughs> I really wanted to find a compromise. Like, I really listened to both sides and I really wanted to please everybody. And for weeks, I just tried to find a compromise and a solution and I couldn't find one. Our, our, our original policy was no babies, no children. So, this was all leading up to our 2016 conference, which was one week before we thought Hillary Clinton would be our president. And what happened is that um, some people started their own splinter secret Facebook group to kind of coordinate an attack on us the week of the, the weekend of the conference. So historically, BinderCon, which is our conference name, that had trended on Twitter all weekend of the conference. We were always a trending hashtag. So they used that in order to make it trending that we were not truly a feminist organization. Um, and one of the speaker, one of the conference speakers was one of the people who thought we should allow babies because she had recently given birth. And so she sat outside the conference in a public square holding the baby and kind of holding court so that people could come up to her and see her with the baby. And, and I just remember like crying, like I was so mortified that um, there had been this coordinated attack to try to take us down. And I had invited, I had invited, I had tried to start a group, a you know, a working group to work on the problem. I had a volunteer who was going to lead that group. I invited people to join us. We were a volunteer organization. Our staff was volunteer. Um, I made $12,000 a year doing this. This wasn't my full-time job, but, but the detractors didn't want to join. They didn't want to help organize the conference. They'd also never been to the conference. So a lot of the people that were protesting us had never actually been to the conference, but they were out to destroy the conference. And that was the second to last one. We had one more after that. And then I couldn't take it anymore. And I resigned and the conference folded. Lee, you are 35. Is that correct? Yes. You are solidly a millennial. Yes, I'm an old millennial. Yes. You're an old millennial. Okay. So, you know, the scenario you just described, how, how does that translate to you in terms of a generational split? Like, do you feel as a millennial kind of torn between the two? Do you identify with Gen Xers more? I, I mean, the book really, it, it's a satire of 
of this culture, but it's also a satire of, of millennials and their relationship to the internet and to social media. So do you see yourself as a sort of outsider among your cohort? Um, that's a good question. Um, lately, I've been feeling, I, I've been joking lately that like, I just want to hang out with my Gen X friends because I feel like the conversations I have about the internet with Gen Xers are richer and more interesting than the conversations I can have with millennials because I, I feel like with millennials, they're so politically active and there's, and there isn't a lot of room for disagreement that, that there's a party line and, um, you tow that line, but there isn't a lot of room for curiosity or questioning or pushing back. You're kind of seen as, um, I don't know, like being the devil's advocate and, and I don't want to be the devil's advocate, but I, I am interested in having like these more nuanced to use a Megan Dom word conversation. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've trademarked that word. <laughs> um, I think n- nuanced is already like jumped the shark, I'm afraid. It's, it's become weaponized. But so it, I wonder, is that because, I mean, I have a number of theories on why this may be and they probably are all off to some degree, but is that because millennials and, and, you know, Gen Z have, you know, their entire sensibilities have really been formed online, like communication, conversation takes place on screens. And so it's inherently flattened and it really makes it much more difficult to have a nuanced conversation. It makes it difficult to disagree or ask questions without immediately being put into the contrarian or devil's advocate box. Um, and I just, I wonder, is it, you know, Gen Xers, we sort of cut our teeth just getting together for drinks and hashing things out and having sort of intellectual debates in person in real time where you can see the look on somebody's face. You can see them smiling. <laughs> you can see, you know, the spirit in which, uh, the debate is occurring. And do you, do you get a sense that that's some of what's going on? I, I think you're right. I mean, I am someone who's grown up online and, and I've been making friends on the internet for a long time. And in my own personal experience, I was, when I was running binders and BinderCon, I was part of the woke mob. I mean, I don't think I piled on people and tried to cancel them. At least I don't remember behaving that badly, but I was part of the group think. I was part of a group of people who, who knew, I knew the right thing to say more than I would ever be. How do I put this? When there was a conflict related to social justice, I knew what I was supposed to say. I barely, rarely challenged the group because I'm such a people pleaser and I'm so conflict avoidant. And I was also the leader of this organization. So I'm not someone that was ever kind of poking or poking holes in anyone's argument. It's only after I left that I started to think like, oh my God, like, was I in some kind of cult? And that was how I was able to write a satire. And even writing a satire, I almost feel like a coward because I had to create this fictional universe to say what I really want to say. I'm not writing journalism about this. I'm writing fiction about it. I have to say part of the delight of the novel for me, I felt extraordinary relief. So I'm a generation older than you. I, you know, I started, you know, I experienced Jezebel. I loved Jezebel when it first started, when Anna Holmes started it. It was like incredible fun. Um, I devoured it, you know, but then I started to, you know, this sort of this digital women's media started catching on and it was sort of ubiquitous. And, you know, the the girl boss phenomenon, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, I always thought of it. I always called it this badass feminism. There was this like trope of the badass. So I hated that stuff. 
Um, but I felt like maybe I was wrong to hate it. I felt like maybe I was missing something or I wasn't appreciating something or that I was just off. And so to read the book, it was just like, oh my gosh, um, it's not me. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's them. Um, but I also wondered how you got away with it because it is, it's a satire Unlike, uh, I, I'm not even sure that a lot of people can get away with writing this kind of satire anymore. I mean, it's a very, I'm not going to say old fashioned, but it's kind of old school. Like you are really going at it. It's pretty wicked in moments. And um, <laughs> I can see why you wouldn't want to do it in nonfiction. I mean, it's the kind of thing I could see trying to do it in nonfiction and then just feeling like it's not even worth it. So I think, yeah, I don't think I'd be able to get away with it um, in nonfiction, but something that's really interesting, even though my book is only just starting to come out as we're having this conversation, is I some pe- not everyone yet is getting all the layers of what I'm doing. So some people, everyone gets immediately that I'm making fun of goop. So the satire of the wellness industry is on the surface. So I, I think of my book as like a Trojan horse and, and the, the outside, the container is this kind of the wing goop eggshell pink, um, you know, jade egg face roller vagina. You know what well, I mean? White, white feminism, which you're white allowed to make fun of. White feminism and wellness, which is so easy to make fun of because it's all these rich women with too much time on their hands, you know, wearing masks on their faces. Um, but I think some people that are reading it aren't realize that I'm also making fun of the extremes of far left mob culture and, and these keyboard social justice warriors. So it's almost like people are reading the book and they have to say that they get the joke because they don't want to be the object of the joke. Can you read a little bit from the novel? Yeah. So um, I'll read a little bit from the point of view of Devin. So this is the Gwyneth Paltrow-esque millennial character. And um, this is a very like American psycho (laughs) um, section of the book. Uh, She's just gotten home from her boutique fitness class. And she posted a video of herself doing a headstand on, on Ritual, the platform. Then it was time for a shower. I had a mold resistant and antimicrobial chrome shower head so I wouldn't get cancer. First, I washed my hair with Christoph Robin purifying shampoo with jujube bark extract. And then, while my hair mask was soaking, I double cleansed with Kiehl's Midnight Recovery Botanical Cleansing Oil, followed by a glycolic acid face wash by Kate Somerville. On my body, I used exfoliating yoga soap made with shea butter and marine nutrients with an aquatic bouquet of sea kelp and coconut. On my vulva, I used Drop of Hope from Lush made with rapeseed oil and tofu. After toweling off and slathering my body in Mojave Ghost Body Lotion from Byredo, I slipped on a lightweight bamboo jersey Racerback 90. There were 512 hearts so far on my post and 36 comments. At Paleo Hell No said, you glow girl. She had twice as many followers as I did and was friends IRL with Kendall Jenner. At Survivor Girl 96 asked for the brand of my yoga mat and I told her. At Yolo Flow said, Aren't headstands recommended for morning, not bedtime? And I replied with a shrug emoji. And then, at your one wild and precious life, wanted to know if headstands are good with people for people with eczema, but I could not handle even thinking about eczema, so I didn't respond. My anti-inflammatory, gluten-free, dairy-free, low-glycemic, non-GMO, organic meals were delivered weekly by Urban Remedy. 
I grabbed a rainbow salad from the fridge with red bell pepper, Swiss chard, pumpkin seeds, roasted beets, kohlrabi, tatsoi, mizuna greens, and arugula, tossed with an olive oil and apple cider vinaigrette with Himalayan pink salt. I ate at my kitchen island, sipping from a dark glass vial of probiotic gut euphony tincture between bites and thumbing through slack on my phone with my left hand. There was a DM from Chloe that said, love that video. I responded with a heart. Eating food reminded me I was due for a colon hydrotherapy session, and I posted to the hashtag editorial channel to see if anyone wanted to come with me and write a story about it for the site. Then I sent Khadija a DM to ask Chloe to make an appointment for me at the clinic. Thank you. Now, how close is this to reality? It's a brilliant passage. (laughs) How far did you have to stretch your imaginative muscles to compose? this passage and there are many like it there are many like (laughs) this is not anomalous in the novel this is pretty typical of Devin's point of view so who is Devin does she exist in does she exist in nature (laughs) (laughs) I was writing this book I mean I was writing this book for months and then my agent was like have you read American Psycho and I was like, no. And I was almost offended that she asked me. Like, this was like part of my like feminist awakening because I thought like, well, I'm a good feminist. Why would I ever read American Psycho? Like, it was one of those texts that in my mind was forbidden. And then I started reading it and I was like texting her. I was like, this book is hilarious. Like, it's so funny. Um, of course, there's like misogynistic, like sexual violence and murder that's like very hard to read. And I wouldn't say enjoyable, but but this, this um, Bateman character who has this like extreme Clinique grooming rich ritual and all these you know exercise rituals it's 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 so it's so out of the goop universe so writing a passage like that like there's so many of these um like vogue editors telling you their skincare routines like that's what i read like i just read all these like how she gets it done profiles that are really like product placements on the cut you know with all these products um and i just like collected them and some of them i made up but the, all that food, that's a real thing from Urban Remedy. Like I just, I just listed off the ingredients of real, <laughs> of real food. That's a real delivery service. Um, so a lot of this is all real. Um, I just put it in, into um, kind of the framework of this universe. And so Devin is, she's the CEO of this company. Is that, that's, she's the head of it, she's the founder. She's the CEO, but she's kind of, um, She's kind of reluctant, like Marin wants more power and Devin wants less. So she's kind of looking around her like, you know, is this it? Like, is this what I really wanted to be the CEO of this company? Um, she's also extremely popular. She's extremely popular on the internet and extremely lonely. So she, a lot of people know her, but she doesn't really have any friends. I want to talk about this, this girl boss idea. You wrote a fantastic piece uh, for Medium's Gen magazine uh, that went up mm-hmm. recently and it went viral. It's gotten um, a ton of clicks. Presumably that means a ton of reads, but who knows? Um, it's, you know, I, it was a great piece and I want, I want you to talk about it, but I actually want to start with um, a comment that was on that piece that I thought was really astute. And it had to do with this, the kind of, um, the kind of successful hard driving woman that someone like Devin is supposed to be the sort of, uh-huh. you know, the, the girl boss in the Cheryl, ostensibly in the Cheryl Sandberg mode. Okay. So this commenter said, 
I've noticed that most people who used and embraced the hashtag girl boss aspired to some kind of ephemeral, hard to pin down, squishy, mushy status as an influencer, success coach, or thought leader without ever having achieved a measurable degree of success in their own careers. Sheryl Sandberg worked her way to her position as COO, while the embracers of girl bossdom really seem to be more about the appearance of being a girl boss, posting to the gram as a priority, rather than shutting the door and doing the necessary work to get there. Did you notice that comment? And did you have any thoughts about it? Um, I try to avoid the comments for my mental health. Yes, I'm doing that. (laughs) I'm going to read you all your comments, you know, since you're here. (laughs) But that one is like so spot on what you just read. And it's so what I experienced myself, even though I wasn't making any money, I was kind of girl boss adjacent when I was running the nonprofit. And I got so much advice to like work on my personal brand and add millennial thought leader to my LinkedIn profile and speak at more events. And I would get like one was called like create and cultivate or something like that. They would send me these links and I'd be like, what is, what is this conference? Like, what is the point of this? And it's just like, you know, badass boss babes, you know, spending the weekend in Palm Springs. Um, And I just thought like, this is all meaningless. It's, there's something really hollow about personal branding um, that's not attached to doing something. And I think this is, this goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago with, with this generational difference that millennials, we have to, our, our careers and our identities are so intertwined and we have to have these personas online. If we're ambitious and we want to get ahead, it's like, we're constantly performing who we are for an audience. At least I feel this way as a writer. And so I want to, but, but I want to be known as someone who writes books, you know, like I want to be known for what I do, not for my identity. And I think it gets really tricky and complicated when there's all this success on the surface, but there's, there's nothing behind it. What is the intersection between the girl boss aesthetic mentality, whatever you want to call it and feminism? Because so would you say that the when did the girl boss ethos sort of originate? Like what year would you put that at? Well, Sophia Amoroso, um, who started the company called Nasty Gal, which was like a fashion website, um, she published her memoir, hashtag girl boss <laughs> in 2014. So that's okay. kind of the beginning of that kind of um I guess she kind of coined the term. Right. So that that makes sense because I mean I remember not too long before that probably, you know, 2000 around 2008, 2009, um the early 10s, you would have celebrities, female celebrities asked whether or not they were a feminist and they would say something like I'm not a feminist but or you know they would be asked about women's equality something like that and they would always have to qualify that they were not a feminist. And then all of a sudden, Beyonce stepped out in front of the lit up feminist sign at the Video Music Awards. And exactly. It was cool. Also in 2014. Right. And but it was a corporate version of feminism. It wasn't this, you know, it, it, the aesthetic was like the opposite of, you know, the crunchy, earthy, grassroots kind of hippie, you know, second, second Harry wave. Armpit. Exactly. Yeah. Second wave feminism. It was all the, all the body hair had been lasered off a version of feminism. But like, do you have any sense of, you know, how seriously any of these women were thinking about women's equality or women's issues, or were they just sort of running with a style, uh, the sort of trappings of this idea? 
I got the sense that they're running with the trend and, and I was kind of there for this. It's like, I don't know that I, when I started my conference, if you would have asked me if I was a feminist, I think I would have said yes, but I, I hadn't read like tons of theory. Like I wasn't like a real social justice activist until I started this conference. And through my work, I actually learned a lot more about feminism and I became more feminist, I think in positive ways. Um, I learned about intersectionality, which I think is a, you know, oh, you ha- I know you have opinions on intersectionality, but that kind of, you know, opened my mind to think about things in a different way. Um, but all around me, I started seeing how many of these kind of women's empowerment summits and conferences and awards there were, and should I go for those things? And the Washington Post called me a leading feminist. It was basically, it was definitely a trend that I was there for, but not profiting from, unfortunately for me. So I I do think, I do think it became trendy and it became a kind of surface level feminism that was about like wearing the color pink and less about, you know, were you slowing down to think about your company and its values and its hiring practices and how you were going to make this, you know, a fair workplace for your employees? Like no, no one was having those conversations. It was more like, what does your personal brand statement say on your Instagram profile? You write in the medium piece, the girl boss was the millennial embodiment of unapologetic ambition. Was it sort of a way of like hiding your ambition? It's almost like a, like a, like a cloak for it. it was it somehow like uncouth to just say like, I'm really, really ambitious and I want to get ahead. Was that like, two eighties or something or, 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 or two nineties, like what? what? No, I think, I think the whole thing is like oppositional against men. So at the same time that feminism was becoming cool, it was also coming, becoming very cool to hate men and, um, this kind of like ironic jokey misandry. So if, however you could position yourself as against men or as going after things that men took for granted, that was very, um, exciting and energizing at the time. So the girl boss phenomenon really has to do with, you know, forming companies and, and selling products that are for women. Like you couldn't, could you have a girl boss that just worked at a normal kind of company? (laughs) The, The girl boss is definitely, she's like a founder. So she has an idea. She's usually a millennial. She usually doesn't have children because if you have children, you often have less time to start a company. Um, and so it's like um, Emily Weiss with Glossier. So so all these, you know, dinosaur beauty brands were still trying to sell you makeup at the Clinique counter at the Macy's, but millennials aren't going to Macy's to buy makeup. And Emily Weiss figured out that you could sell the makeup on Instagram. So all these direct-to-consumer brands were coming up at the same time that the girl boss was coming up. Um, and so she was kind of like a millennial disruptor. She saw where millennials were spending their time. They were spending their time online and she saw how to sell them things. Um, and it has its own aesthetic. It has, um, again, it's the, it's the stock photos of women of color, you know, like they, you have diverse, um, models in your advertising, um, and you're targeting that to a very specific consumer, but you say that you're a feminist. And so you get, you kind of get like points for being woke, but you're making a lot of money. So, and what is the relationship to men in real life, because I often wonder this, like, yeah, the the ironic misandry, you know, I, I get that as a as a conceit. I get it as a vernacular um, online. But I often wonder, like the people who are really kind of trafficking in this and enjoying it and embracing it, like, I'll just not to, you know, put too fine a point on it. Do they have boyfriends? Like, what's what are their relationships with men like? <laughs> um, that's funny. I mean. 
Um, I mean, we know what Devin's boyfriend is like in the novel. I don't want to give anything away, but um, right. she's not, she does not have a, uh, a, a conventional, like uh, egalitarian relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, I, I'm, I haven't thought a lot about the, the sexual orientation of the girl boss, but I, I think she's usually straight. I'm trying to think of any queer girl bosses I can think of. I think she's usually straight. Um, I just remember when I ran my conference, you know, we were a women only space. So men were not allowed to attend to the conference, but we would often joke about like, unless they give us money. So if they were like a, you know, a corporate sponsor, we might let them peek their head in to see what their money was buying them. But that was the only way to get, to get access to what we were doing. And how much of it was a reaction to the sort of, you know, the, the Gen X baby boomer version of getting ahead? So someone like Marissa Mayer, who, uh, you know, was famously at, at Yahoo and famously uh, took like a 10 minute maternity leave and was saying that everybody should do that. Like, would they be defining themselves in opposition to that kind of approach? That's a good question. I mean, it, it has to, you have to make it look like this millennial feminism. It's like, you have to make it look fun. It's like all your work is play and all your play is work. Um, it's, it's kind of a performative workaholism. I, I don't know if, if, if that, I, I think you might need to say, tell me how that's different from Gen Xers. But I think there's like definitely this like millennial gig economy, um, work ethic that's, nothing is ever not work. Like even your, even your free time is spent networking and you're trading information with people that could one day, uh, help you in your career. It's kind of depressing. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that. I'm not sure that that on its face is like terribly different from any generation's idea of being really ambitious and working really hard and giving 110% and all of that. It's just that we were not documenting it, you know? Right. So like, so I was a teenager in the eighties and the model for being a successful, you know, powerful woman in business was like the power suit. You know, you'd have your, you know, your, your shoulder padded Anne Klein suit and you'd put on your running shoes and carry your high heel shoes right, in your bag, right, right. take the Staten Island Ferry, like, like Melanie Griffith and working girl, like that was the idea. And certainly like working really hard and not having a life, um, forgetting to have kids, all that kind of thing that was sort of romanticized in a certain way, but we did not have this extra layer of having to take pictures of ourselves doing it all the time. And I think that that is a huge difference and a huge burden to bear, frankly. I, I mean, are you are you guys jealous of, of us Gen Xers? <laughs> <laughs> well, this makes me think of, this is another example. So in, in quarantine, my my partner and I have been watching like an, a lot of old movies from the 80s and the 90s. And we've watched some of these like Gen X slacker movies. Um, and I'm also, I'm, I'm also researching something else. I'm reading um, Sarah Marcus's book on Riot Girl music. Um, so I'm really kind of interested in nine, early 90s um, counterculture right now. And that's led me to think about how everything for a millennial has to have a monetary value. And you'll even see it on Twitter. I think this is not just millennial, but Gen Z too. You'll see it on Twitter. Someone's tweet goes viral and they're like, here's the link to pay me for my viral tweet, which is insane to me what? because I'm like, this is just a thought. Yeah. Like here's my coffee link or here's my PayPal where you can compensate me for this funny tweet that I wrote. Um, 
Whereas when I read about riot girl culture, it was like, you know, if pay a dollar for a zine or pay $5 to come to our concert, like we want it to be accessible to everyone. Um, we are, we don't, there's like a Gen X mentality that, you know, fuck the man. Like we don't want to profit. Um, you know, we're doing this to make art. And that is like becoming increasingly appealing to me as everything gets commercialized. Right. And we also didn't want to be part of a group. We didn't, we were not into labels. And I think that, you know, it's easy to sort of have a facile version of this conversation, but, you know, there's such an emphasis on, you know, cat identity categories that are just more and more thinly sliced now. And I think it's, it's strange for people my age and older to look at that because we were all about like, well, we don't belong to any category. Like we're not, we're not interested in that. And so there's kind of been a reversal. Like there's a kind of, there's a sort of um, strength and affiliation, or there's just something maybe soothing about being part of a a group or a tribe. Um, And that could, you know, there could be a lot of reasons for that. But I want to go back to to your wokeness. I mean, you said when you started out of the binders, you were, you were, you were, bought in, right? You were really sort of um, going along with this, with this message, which to be fair, was not nearly as, as pointed and extreme, um, and occasionally unhinged as it comes across now. So can you just talk a little bit about what your, (laughs) what your sort of ideology was at that time? Yeah, I think, I think it, it felt good to me to be part of a group and it felt good to me to be a leader. I enjoy being a leader. Um, I think I'm good at it. Um, I felt, you know, I learned more about social justice through this work. I learned more about feminism. Um, I, and I tried to be a really pragmatic problem solver. So like, one example of that is like with our with our conferences, we would have a speed pitch event where we would have editors and literary agents come to the conference and then writers could sign up to pitch them ideas. And I was looking at the Vita. Vita is a nonprofit organization that counts bylines by gender in major magazines. And I and I was looking at their numbers. And in 2014, Harper's Magazine, their numbers were horrible. So they published way more men than women. And so I thought about how how can I change that? Like what, what's in my power? Like, what can I do? And so I thought I'll invite an editor from Harper's Magazine to come to our conference. But the Harper's Magazine couldn't send, they didn't have any female editors to send to our women only event. <laughs> so um, they said they would send a man. So they sent their executive editor and I said, great. So he came. And so that was like an example of, uh, you know, it's, it's not just enough to sit around and complain about how bad things are. Like I really wanted to think about what are the barriers and how do we get around them? And so in that way, I feel positive about um, what I did. I think, I think the thing that disturbs me now is there's not a lot of solutions. It, it's, a lot of, um, it's a lot of venting and outrage about um, injustice and, and less people. There's, there isn't a lot of leadership and there aren't a lot of solutions being put forward. It just feels like this kind of collective screaming. And is that because on some level, there's a really limited number of solutions. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think, you know, what we're seeing now um, with the, a book like White Fragility. So, so we're so um, overwhelmed by a large issue, which is racism in America and racist police practices that we think, what can I do? And the answer is, I'll read this book that lets me work on my own implicit bias. And that to me is just another form of this kind of self-help, self-improvement 
stuff that I'm skewering in my novel. I just don't know if that's the answer that we need to work more on themselves. Did, did I need to become a better feminist first before I could start a conference? Because when I look back, like there was a lot I didn't know when I started, you know, I'd never heard of intersectionality when I started. Does that mean I should have never started my conference in the first place? So that's another thing that disturbs me is that, you know, we're expecting white people to be perfect before they do anything. And I think that's, I think that's not going to work out great for a lot of, a lot of people. You write in your medium piece, your girl boss piece, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility is number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It's poised to become the new, it's poised to become the lean in of the 2020s, a book by a white woman for white women that says, see this big systemic problem, start by working on yourself. White fragility is social justice through the lens of self-improvement. And as is always the case with self-improvement programs marketed to white women, there's money to be made here. I thought that was really well put. And, you know, it also, it reminds me, so, you know, I cut my teeth as a, as a writer, as a freelance writer in the 1990s, writing for women's magazines. So this was before the internet. I was, when, they, when they paid money, when they, they paid, paid money, money to do that. And that's actually <laughs> why I wrote for them. I did not... Uh, have any other source of income. Like the, the people who could afford to work at the Paris Review or write for, you know, the the sort of, you know, the, the literary magazines or even the New York Review of Books sorts of places, they had to have, they basically had to be independently wealthy or have other sources of income yeah. because those places didn't pay anything. So what you had was all those sort of scrappy people who, you know, really could not afford to be in the business unless we were being paid a dollar a word, often quite a lot yep. more, uh, we're writing for the women's magazines. And it always, you know, it, the, the premise with all of them was your life is a problem and we're going to sell <laughs> right. you the solutions. That right. was really the fundamental tenant of, of those magazines. And it just seems that it's been, you know, it seems so out of date now. It just seems like very fusty and quaint, but this sort of digital, extremely like, you know, hip hipster, badass outgrowth of it is is almost like so much more insidious because it masquerades as not only feminist, because the, the women's magazines also sort of masqueraded as as feminist, but it they masquerade as like progress and right side of history kind of thing. And that's like kind of scary. Yeah, I think I think Jessa Crispin did a good job of critiquing this in her book, Why I'm Not a Feminist, where she, she talks about how feminism has evolved to the place where no matter what you do, as long as you're a woman, whatever you do is feminist, if you say this. And so it's, it's like, whatever you do is political. Anything you right. do as a woman, you know, getting out of bed in the morning is a political act. Yeah, so it's very confusing. So these kind of mixed messages, both about politics and being a good feminist, but also about beauty and, and health. Like it used to be buy makeup, cover up your face, and now it's have perfect skin. You know, have a $200 skincare routine so your skin looks perfect and then lightly put on makeup that only reveals how beautiful your skin is. Right. It's, 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 it's just selling us more products and, and, and reinforcing this idea that there is something wrong with us, even as we're told that all along, we're good feminists as long as we're making choices for ourselves. I want to talk about the wing for a minute here. Um, I know that your, your novel, it's not directly about the wing, but it's wing inspired. I get the sense. Um, can you explain, and I know you don't have any uh, relationship to the wing. You're just 
I want you to explain as, a, an as an observer, bystander. as an innocent bystander, <laughs> what it is or was. So the wing is like a female only WeWork. So it's a co-working space and it was started in 2016, I think just a few weeks before the election. And it was, it was founded as a social club um, for women, but also it's a, it's a physical location that was beautifully designed. I've never been there in person, but I've seen so many images online. Like it does look like something out of, you know, a millennial feminist, like fantasy life. It's all velvet and like, like pink and like, you know, the avocado toast is 1295. And so the founder, Audrey Gelman, is who inspired the Marnie character on Girls. So she's a friend of Lena Dunham's and she founded it with another woman, Lauren Casson or Cassan. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And there was famously a scene in Girls uh, where they go to the wing, right? There's, and I don't think Marnie, That's right. the, the Audrey Gelman character in that particular scene is, is not, is not Marnie, but there's some, something that goes on. I think Shoshana is involved and uh, Shoshana very much wants to be a part of this group. So it, it's a couple hundred, it was a couple hundred dollars a month to be a member. And it got all this criticism for not being inclusive to women who couldn't afford to pay a couple hundred dollars a month to be a member, which I thought was kind of unfair because we work was even more expensive. So, so why do we expect women only? Well, this is a question, right? Why do we expect women only spaces to be like crunchy granola feminist, you know, pay what you can sliding scale, which would end up with, you know, someone's, you know, a, a basement, you know, instead of a right. beautiful that would lush be the Boston penthouse. women's health collective. Yes. <laughs> So I think the question is whether this is progress, that the wing raised so much money that they could compete with the boys, that they raised it from female investors, which is another way to compete. Um, and they, they, were, they were capitalist feminists. So is that success? Or do we want to envision a different kind of model of female success. It's even hard for me to wrap my mind around it. I mean, the editor for my girl boss piece said like, where do we go from here? Like, what's the answer to the girl boss? And it's hard for me to even imagine, like, is it, is the answer like co-ops, like cooperatively owned businesses where women come together and they all are co-owners? Um, it's just like, it's like, I can't get my brain to live outside of capitalism to even imagine another alternative. But I also don't think it's fair that men should have all the power and money either. Well, and is the premise there that women can't compete with men? Like, why are we having separate, why are we thinking of this in terms of separate workplaces? Is there a sense that like, we just have to give up on the idea of being able to, to beat a man out of a C-suite corporate position? Right. That's another good question. So, so you could say with my conference, why, why did we have a women only conference? And I would say there are, there are conversations that happened in these rooms and networking that happened in these rooms that I think would have been different if men were in the room. Um, the, the, the tenor of the room changes, you know, we can do a panel on, on reproductive justice or balancing parenting and writing, um, in a way that we wouldn't do it with men in the room. Um, Although how great would it be if you could have a version of that discussion with men in the room because it does affect them. I mean, yeah. how great would it be if men were concerned about having to leave work at a certain time to pick their kid up at school? And sometimes they are. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I know men who have stressed over this and 
um, feel sort of unheard or are almost embarrassed to bring it up. Not nearly as many as, you know, women who feel this way, but um, it just, it seems kind of depressing that we can't even envision a time where these sorts of discussions wouldn't be separated according to gender so, so profoundly. Yeah. And I think, I think it is a, a good question about whether we want to be in segregated gender spaces, whether according to white fragility, we need segregated racial spaces. You know, she talks about having these like white affinity groups that just talk about their whiteness together with other white people. Do we, do we want to see an increasingly segregated society? I think there's, <laughs> a, I, think we we that. I think there's a historical precedent for that, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Or it's, 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 it seems like a depressing trend to me that we can, that this, it seems to me that the next trend is that this focus on identity labels is, is actually just putting us into tinier and tinier, tinier groups. Well, especially too, because it seems like the, the girl boss gestalt, it's very heteronormative. And it seems to me, it doesn't exactly line up with what people seem to be really more and more interested in now, which is this idea of non-binary and, you know, mm-hmm. we don't need to be so gender essentialist. So is there a level on which like the, the girl boss aesthetic is kind of timing out? Yeah, it seems very passe. <laughs> on the other hand, I, I want, if, if my understanding, the wing was originally called refresh, is that right? And yes. <laughs> it had to do with having a place to to freshen up <laughs> between your very important meetings. So this yes. actually brings me to something that I think a lot about, and it's directly addressing what you read in, in your excerpt with all the, the products that Devin is using and all the ways that she's uh, grooming and, and, you know, uh, indulging in self-care. So the tyranny of grooming and looking perfect for, for powerful women. It's like, if you are going to be, um, a high achieving, high profile, um, high earning, uh, woman in the corporate world or in the media sphere or in the arts or really anything where you are in public, there is a whole other layer to think about. And that is what you look like. And yeah, men have to worry about, you know, dressing well, having a nice suit, uh, looking, pretty good at the highest levels, but it is nothing compared to what's expected of women. You can prepare meticulously for a meeting or a speech or your closing argument as a trial lawyer, but if your nails are ragged, it's game over. And it's like, that is just an enormous amount of extra work that, that quote unquote, powerful, successful women really can't get out of doing. And so is there any getting past this? Well, there, there's a fight scene in my novel where, I mean, Marin, who's the kind of workaholic behind the scenes, she gets fed up with Devin and says to her something to the effect of like, you think getting your nails done and your highlights done and working out like that, that's part of your labor. Like you think you should get credit for doing all that stuff. But of course, Devin has to do that to be the face of the company. Would their company be successful were Devin not the face of it? I think it's almost... It's almost something I wish we would talk about more instead of just glossing over. Even watching the episodes of the Goop Lab TV show on Netflix, there's like an episode where they all try to reduce their biological age by going on different diets. I don't know if you've watched this show. (laughs) 
I don't know how, but um, they like draw straws to randomly choose diets. And Gwyneth happens to get the diet where you fast and only eat 500 calories a day. And she wins at the end by like aging backwards multiple years. Do you get to be like a baby? Um, That would be the the ultimate success. (laughs) You get to go back to being an infant. Yes. Yes. You can. And then you can come to the Binders Conference. (laughs) Only babies who used to be Gwyneth Paltrow and aged backwards can come to the conference. I think that's fair. Um, but there's all this, all this work. I mean, you just look at Gwyneth and it's, it's the appearance, it's the appearance of effortlessness, but you know, it's not effortless. You know, there's so much work that goes into creating that, but we aren't allowed to talk about it. No. And you know, one of the things that I'm noticing now during the quarantines, like not getting a haircut is become this kind of I don't want to say virtue signal, but it's a way of, it's a, it's a gesturing at, you know, you're taking this seriously. You're, you're taking yes. the lockdown seriously. Okay. And so you see all these men like, um, you know, Rand Paul had this kind of shaggy haircut, uh, the mayor of, of Minneapolis when he was, uh, you know, when he was frog marched back, you know, having to yes. like, do, you know, admit to his white privilege and beg forgiveness. He had this kind of like, shaggy 90s hair that I'm assuming he doesn't have uh, most of the time as a public official. But women politicians, uh, we're not really seeing their roots. We're not seeing a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, unkempt appearance uh, on their behalf, you know, on, on we're the not seeing a, on CNN look incredible. I have right, to say. Yes. So we're and I, you know, there was this whole controversy with the mayor of Chicago, who's a black woman. And I guess somebody had noticed that she had looked like she had gotten her hair done or haircut or something. She was looking, you know, well, well put together. And then they were sort of saying, oh, well, how dare she? You know, everyone else is locked down. You're not supposed to get a haircut. And she's obviously gone out and done this. And then someone made the point. Well, my gosh, she's not only a, a woman public official, she's a black woman. And if you uh, show up in front of a camera with your hair not looking professional, that's going to translate into not being taken seriously as a professional, period. Much right, more so course, than many with, cultural with ideas about black women's hair. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. There's a lot going on in that. Um, but it does strike me as something that nobody wants to talk about. And I think it's exactly to your point, like a lot of women, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, not that, you know, I'm somebody who's at the nail salon every day, but there is something just kind of um, unseemly about talking about these things. Uh, mm-hmm. You just, you just want to give the impression that you, you, you always look like this, that, that you have made no effort because people who uh, talk about it constantly are just, sort of not serious people. Right. You don't want to. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like so much of what I did to write this book is I just, you know, spent a lot of time on Instagram, just kind of lurking on these influencer pages and just, just seeing the performance. I mean, it's, it's so performative, this kind of wellness lifestyle where it's as if, if you eat the right quantity of like blueberries and chia seeds, that's what makes your skin perfect. And so everyone's trying to Everyone wants to feel better and look better. And so I think it's only changed who who are the influencers that are giving them giving us the messaging of how to do that. It used to be maybe women's magazines in the 90s, and now it's the influencers we follow on Instagram. And they're not t- telling the truth, which is that they probably got Botox and fillers. It doesn't have to do with chia seeds. 
Right, right. So it's all it's all smoke and mirrors. And I, I hope my book just kind of peels back some of that so that people see what's underneath it. So do you think that um, the way that the culture appears to be changing, people working from home, people having Zoom meetings, people just sort of, you know, we, we are obviously in a moment where we're not in physical spaces. Uh, do you think that there's any hope of a more egalitarian kind of culture coming out of this? Egalitarian. Um, <laughs> like you don't have, look, okay. If you have a zoom meeting, your hair has to look decent, but you don't have to have like high heel shoes and a pedicure. Right. I keep thinking about like how I have Marin days and Devon days on zoom. Like Devon days are like where I put on the makeup and I put on the powder. Cause like, I know I'm going to be shiny on the camera and like I go all out and Marin days are like, I roll out of bed and like I change my shirt and then I go on zoom. <laughs> it depends who I'm going to see on the other side of that camera. But, um, it is interesting. I haven't think of, I've been thinking about kind of how this has been the the quarantine has kind of democratized things and that's why so many people are using the power lever of Twitter to make things happen because like we're all at home together. You can kind of tweet something out and if you have enough followers that can really have an impact on your workplace if you speak up because everyone's kind of in the same boat. Mm. Um and I think that kind of happened with um the Tom Cotton op-ed and the way the um some of the time staffers spoke up about that and then they had a town hall about it. So I think that is an interesting phenomenon to observe. Or, you know, are we all, do, do lower rank employees have more power than before if, if we're all online together? Yeah. And I actually wonder what you think of this narrative that there is a generational power grab going on. Uh, in these workplaces. So, you know, there's a lot of suddenly, very, very sort of suddenly and with rapid intensity, there's talk about uh, racial injustice in the workplace and everywhere else. And we're having these very intense, uncomfortable, sometimes wrenching, devastating conversations in workplaces and elsewhere. And one of the, the ways that people interpret this is that, you know, the young wokes are taking power from the old sort of, you know, old neoliberals and uh, this is a revolution and this is how it's going to be now. Um, obviously, that's a really oversimplified, but as a person who is 35 years old and, you know, <laughs> you're neither 25 nor 45. So I think you're, you know, you're, you're sort in a way you're between a rock and a hard place, but you're also, you know, potentially well positioned to have some thoughtful insights into all of this. I, I, I do agree with Barry Weiss on this. I, I see her point and I, and I do think there is a generational um, changing of the guard and I don't work in media. I'm a, I'm a free agent. I'm a freelancer. I, I, um, I've had one full-time job in my whole life and it was the one year I was an assistant at the New Yorker and I couldn't take it anymore. And I left. And so I've always just had like gigs. I don't like institute. I don't, I kind of bristle against institutions. But, but a related thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and this is why I'm reading about the Riot Girl music scene of the early 90s, is I feel like there's no counterculture left, that everything that comes up from the woke left um, becomes mainstream. So the New York Times is responding to certain pressures and publishing, I think they're publishing more op-eds by people of color. I think that's a good thing. But I'm, I, I'm skeptical of this idea that um, we aren't hearing enough of X stories. We're not hearing enough of X voices because I'm actually seeing it a lot in the mainstream media. And what I'm not seeing 
are the more heterodox ideas. There are certain outlets that publish those. Um, but the mainstream seems to be taken over by the progressive activists. That's my opinion. Are you worried at all about expressing that kind of opinion? especially when you've got a book to sell and you've got a lot of young people who are really invested in identifying themselves as having the opposite of that kind of opinion. I'm like, I'm not asking any millennials to change their politics and I still identify as left wing. I'm a progressive and I'm going to vote Democrat, you know, in the election. Um, But I think I'm asking for a little more curiosity and skepticism and not this kind of rush to judgment and rush to, um, join in with the crowd all the time. I think that's what I'm pushing pushing back against. As somebody who at one time was part of this kind of crowd, not manifesting as intensely as, as it does now at this moment, but you know, pretty pretty influential. You could call it. You you, you drank a, a certain kind of Kool Aid. It was much more dilute <laughs> than than the Kool Aid we have now. But when you see the canceling going on now and the kind of um, really just reactionary, um, extreme sort of vocabulary around these issues. What do you think people are getting out of it? Do they really believe it? Do they mean it? Or is there, is it just the dopamine hit of saying these things and being rewarded for it? I think it feels so good to be righteous and it feels so good to feel like you're on the right side of history. And my novel is set in 2017, one month after um, Trump was inaugurated, which was another period of intense outrage. And it felt like we were all looking at each other like, isn't there something we can do? Like, how do we get this guy out of office? Like, there must have been a mistake made. And so we looked for other targets we could topple because we couldn't get out our main target. And I think that snowballed into the Me Too movement. And I think we're seeing this again now that... um, we feel really helpless, um, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, and we feel let down by our leaders. And it seems impossible to get Mitch McConnell out of his job running the country. And so we look for easier targets. Um, We tell ourselves we're doing the right thing. And with the character of Marin in my book, um, I kept asking myself, like, how far will she go with telling herself that she's she's doing it for all the right reasons? So kind of pushing a character who's a self-avowed feminist into murky waters. Um, but all the time she's telling herself she's on the right side of it. That was something I was really interested in exploring. Yeah. And I have a high hopes for Marin. I think, uh, I, I, I think she's going to be okay. Her. I think she's going to be okay. I, I don't want her to be too okay. I liked her to be a little <laughs> bit of a mess. That was kind of part of her appeal. So, so Lee, my last question, it's, it's a question that I, I ask everybody, uh, at the end of this of this podcast, partly because at one point the podcast was going to be called The Problem with Everything. Uh, And I like to sort of ask people what they think is like the main problem of the world. What is the thing that we do to mess up our lives? What is the thing that we keep not getting right or, or just, you know, constantly do to what, what's the cause of our distress is I guess my, my question. And you can answer it either um, in the context of what we've been talking about or the novel or, or just more generally? Right now, I feel obsessed with this kind of hypocrisy on the left that we so call for tolerance. And at the same time, we're so intolerant and there's no room for forgiveness or change. 
um, in people that we just kind of see people as as either good or bad and anyone could kind of fall from their pedestal at any moment. I think it's a really ugly way of looking at other people and it makes me really nervous <laughs> about about the election and um it's it's something that I'm hyper aware of uh, now that I live online even more than ever before. I already lived very online. Well, I'm glad that you live online enough to have written this wonderful novel. It's just incredibly entertaining and incredibly, incredibly heartbreaking in a sort of sneaky way. It's 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 very funny, and I laughed out loud all the way through it. But I hope that people will read it on on all the levels that you wrote it on because it's it's really layered and there's a lot there's a lot in play so i congratulate you on it and Thanks, thank Megan. you thank you so much for uh for joining me you've been listening to the unspeakable podcast with megan down you can subscribe on itunes spotify stitcher and google podcasts and for more information you can visit the unspeakablepodcast.com Tune in next week for another amazing guest, which I will announce very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces, or at least most of them. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call one 888 Recovery now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art campus in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.